0: This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, um, so uh, quickly repeat. Basically, from top four, we were talking. Uh, Marty was saying about the reminder of the world of Christ being the pinnacle of the Christian faith. However, familiarity with it breeds contempt, and it will cease to become the center. So, my first question was how do we as Christians avoid this practically? Mm-hmm. The second one is uh, for leaders of the church, uh, how do we ensure that uh, we don't do this, while also there's this worry that, you know, for the congregation thinking that we're always repeating the same things, and why are we doing the same thing all the time? Yep. thank you. Very, very good question. Um, how do we prevent familiarity of the cross of the gospel breeding contempt? Um, it's actually very simple, really, I think. Stick close to God's Word. Okay, That's why expository preaching, through preaching through books of the Bible and in small groups studying books of the Bible and in your own personal life reading lots of the Bible, trying to, say, read the Bible in a year, you know, cover to cover, uh, that's what's going to prevent you, I think, or to go a long way to preventing you from losing the gospel. Why? Because the Bible is inspired of God. Not just the content of the Bible, but the way that the Bible is written. And so if you stick close to the Bible and just preach expositorily through it, work expositorily through it in your small groups and in your own personal devotions, you will get God's emphasis all the time uh, coming to you from Scripture. Okay, Um, if if your main staple of learning about the gospel or Christian things just comes from books only, or topics or whatever it may be, um, that's more likely to get you away from the gospel. So that's number one: stick close to the Bible. Number two: pray, 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 pray. Why? Because the issue is a spiritual one. Okay, we are still. Even though we've been converted, even though the new creation has gone on in our heart, we still have a sinful nature, and the sinful nature will do anything to push Jesus from the centre. Um, and it's so, when we hear the prosperity gospel and those kinds of things, often a lot of us go, well, of course that's stupid. So the great temptation is, yes, we still keep believing the gospel, but it goes on the back burner. Okay? Uh, so keep praying, keep praying, keep praying. Keep reading scripture. Okay, so, uh, should we go from the bottom upwards? I think that's the order of them. Marty, do you still cycle to college? No, I don't. Uh, I catch the bus and the MRT. I think I'd be so hot and sweaty by the time I got to college, it'd take me all day just to cool down. Um, Question number two, at which point do we receive our new heart and new spirit, Ezekiel 36, is it when we go to heaven, holding area, oh I see, or only when the new creation comes? Okay, the new heart and the new spirit, gotta understand that the Old Testament prophecies about the end time, they began with the coming of Christ, and particularly with the resurrection, But they're not complete until Jesus returns a second time. So the new heart and the new spirit that Ezekiel 36 looks towards, that has begun in our hearts now. That is exactly what John 3 is all about when Jesus talks to Nicodemus and says you must be born of water and spirit. That is referring back to Ezekiel 36. Okay? When we become a Christian, we have received a new heart and a new spirit. Okay, uh, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, if they're married to Christ, there is a new creation. The new creation has begun, but it's not complete yet until the Lord Jesus returns. Okay, in the meantime, we still have a sinful nature that we struggle with, but that is not fundamental to us. What is now fundamental to our motivation uh, is the change of heart that we now are followers of Christ. Like I say, we've Moved off the broad road that leads to destruction. We're now on the narrow road that leads to life, but we wobble quite a bit while we're on the narrow road. The main thing is what road do you want? Yes? Um, I can't answer that question because the Bible doesn't directly address it. Uh, it's it's very, the Bible is very mysterious about the holding area. Um, we just know that there's a conscious existence with Christ and I, I think I don't want to go any further than that. And remember we're incomplete until we get our resurrection body, so it's probably best to focus on that time and say it's all completed then. Um, What happens to the Trinity between the time Jesus died and rose again? In other words, did Jesus disappear momentarily from the Trinity? Okay, uh, let's let's think about this again. Um, What's our formula for the doctrine of the Trinity? One, substance, and what's a substance? Capacity to do, fantastic. So substance is capacity to do, and then three, persons. What's a person? Capacity to relate. Okay. So what happens in the cross uh, when uh, Jesus and the Father are separated? There is no obliteration or anything like that of the one substance. That's impossible because the one substance is divine. The one substance can never die, you know, that, that it's utterly impossible. What happens is that there is a relational separation between the Father and the Son. That happens, it would seem, for three hours when Jesus is on the cross. Okay? Midday, when darkness came over the whole land, and then when he cried out, it is finished, that was at the point, it seems, where he had fully exhausted uh, the punishment for our sin. And that is why he says to the thief on the cross before he's died, today you will be in me in paradise. Okay so for the 3 days that Jesus body was in the grave he was with the father in paradise paradise is uh, uh that the place where people go between now and the resurrection okay so it's not as if Jesus went to hell or something while his body was in the grave no okay he'd already suffered for sins he'd taken the punishment at that stage and he goes to be with the father okay so you can't have any pulling apart of the trinity or anything like that Yes. So so there's two two verses that people draw attention to. Number one, when Jesus says as uh Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. Now the heart of the earth in the Bible is a metaphor, it's a it's picture language to describe death. Okay, so um you know, you've got the underworld, you've got the down there. You know how people sort of lift their and When Jesus prays to feed 5,000, he looks up to heaven. Metaphorically, God is up there. He's not, because God doesn't have a bodily existence. But And metaphorically, dead people are down there. Um, that's why it says, you know, uh, all people will praise God in heaven and on earth and under the earth, even the dead people. So that's just a metaphor to say that Jesus' body would be dead for three days. Then you've got the 1 Peter passage in 1 Peter 3, uh, which it, it talks about him preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, but that's actually, when you read it, that's actually something that happens after the resurrection. It's not something that happens after his death and before his resurrection. Because it talks about he was put to death in the body, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Um, uh, what is that proclamation? It's very, very difficult to know. Uh, it's like baptism of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. Please, would you tell us more what's going on? We don't know. Uh, and therefore, we do, what we don't want to do is make an important point because if it was important to be thoroughly clear in Scripture. There's some kind of declaration when Jesus rose from the dead to show that death has been conquered and somehow that's been proclaimed to spirits in prison, uh, perhaps inhabitants of hell and the devil the devil or maybe even the spirits who rebelled back in Genesis 6. All kinds of speculation. Uh, okay. So, um, idols in our heart normally arise out of pain that is not dealt with. Could you explain how this is so and how we can better explain this to friends from the Bible? Yes. Um, one of the things that we struggle with in a fallen world, of course, is pain. Uh, not just physical pain, yes, we struggle with physical pain, but emotional pain, particularly emotional pain from broken relationships, uh, from uh, you know times when we may have been bullied at school by our peers, all kinds of things like that. Even emotional pain for people who have, let's say, a low self-esteem and uh, feel like they're a nobody. Now, when we suffer from some kind of emotional pain in our life, the temptation is to dull that pain. And we can dull that pain in a variety of ways, can't we? We can binge on Netflix all the time. Uh, we we can look at internet porn. We can dull the pain by eating food. Um, you know, often when you're struggling with the pain uh, and you're not even thinking about it, you've suddenly got your phone out and you're looking at specials because you can go and buy something because shopping gives you that sudden high. Um, what and and therefore these are kind of idols that we flee to. We're not fleeing to God in our pain, okay? Because He is the only one that can give us contentment, uh, and it's knowing God in Christ that is the only one that can give us contentment, uh, as Paul talks about in uh, Philippians three, that he's learned contentment in all circumstances, okay. Um, Philippians 4, but go back to Philippians 3, where he says, I want to know Christ. Everything else uh, is rubbish compared to knowing Christ. That's what will give us contentment. So what we need to be able to do is to reflect on the pain in our life and reflect on how it drives us to make, try and dull that pain using various idols. Okay? And if we are trying to comfort ourselves with those various idols rather than find the comfort that we truly need in the Lord Jesus Christ. What I mean, though, is that where you do have pain, that doesn't suddenly mean that you memorise a verse of scripture about Jesus' death on the cross and suddenly all the pain's gone. doesn't work like that in a foreign world. Sometimes there's legitimate pain. Um, for example, when you grieve over a loved one who's died, that is legitimate pain that will last for a time. The issue is, what are you going to do with that legitimate pain that's not suddenly going to go? Okay, And that's where you've got to recognise that it's the Lord Jesus who we fundamentally need and will be an anchor through that pain, and to use all the the pain and suffering that that, uh, we suffer from now, to be able to use that to look to home, i.e. the new creation, and uh, that will give us the ability to struggle with suffering and pain in the present okay now when we just just to add on to that when we've got friends who are particularly going through suffering the worst and particularly when it's legitimate suffering the worst thing you can do is kind of tell them to snap out of it and the worst thing you can do is just keep giving advice all the time often they know uh, that Jesus is what will give them contentment. Um, It's like Job's friends. They were fantastic friends. Fantastic friends until they opened their mouth. (laughs) And one of the things we have to learn to do is to sit with our friends in pain, okay, and pray with them, and listen to them, and be comfortable with them in pain, and not be lecturing them all the time, but listen, pray, comfort, and as uh, Paul says, bear each other's burdens. Okay? Weep with those who weep, laugh with those who laugh. I remember um, a cu- I was, as a pastor I was called out to a couple who had just lost a two-week-old baby. Uh, and the baby had died because of a mistake that the doctor made, the baby was healthy. Uh, and I remember for three hours they showed pictures of the baby to me, they wept, and what did I do? All I could do was weep. And I did not give them any advice whatsoever at that point in time because they're not even listening to me. They're just in too much grief. And the best way you can show love at that time is to be with them and to weep with them and to carry their burdens with them. And, of course, for the next two years of their life, they're just in pain. And the temptation, particularly in the second year, was for me to just say, snap out of it and have some happy thoughts, for goodness sake. It doesn't work that way, okay? Um... Uh, the wonderful thing is they were a non-Christian couple. The Lord used this to bring them to Christ. you know. And four years later they had another little baby and I officiated at their wedding. Uh, they got married because they were just living together at that time. So you don't know how God is going to use uh, that kind of disaster. With the guy, the, the bloke in that relationship, he uh, wasn't a talker. So what were we to do? I said, let's just, I, I just kept phoning up and saying, let's go for a surf. And we wouldn't talk much. We just surf together, but we do things together so that he had someone with him. Okay. So, uh, I don't know if that's answering questions or scratch. Okay. Oh, that's what you mean. People who we've been praying for, we die, we don't know whether they're saved. Or will we know whether they get saved or not? Um, when you mean heaven, you mean the waiting place now until the new creation? Yeah. it's The Bible doesn't tell us, uh, so we just have to be agnostic on that. Um, all we know is that there's this chasm from Luke 16 in which man Lazarus, there's a chasm uh, that can't be crossed between those in heaven and those on earth at this time. So I, I, we can't answer that question because the Bible doesn't tell us. But when we get to the new creation, we will know that. Slido. Where is the place of parachurch organisations within the church schematic? What if its role, what is its role in equipping and gospel mission? Okay, we saw that you've got the heavenly church that manifests as the general church, the local church and the gathered church. Now the question is where does the parachurch organisation fit in? When we say parachurch, which church are we talking about? in that phrase, para-church. Uh, usually it means the local church, or a denomination, and it shouldn't mean a denomination, because a denomination is not a church. Usually it means outside of the local church. Um, well, it can be outside the local church, it can be a part of the general church, can't it? Because the general church is Christians, and a lot of what applies to a local church can apply to a general church. You will go to conferences, Christian conferences and conventions and Christian camps that aren't a part of your church, but let's say are a part of the general church, and God can use all kinds of word gifts and encouragement and Christians to help each other outside of that. So you can put the parachurch, I think, as a part of the general church... But the emphasis in the New Testament focuses on the local church. So it's not as if parachurch work is illegitimate. Not at all. Uh, But it doesn't take the emphasis that the local church does. And there's lots of things that you can only achieve in a local church that you can't in a parachurch. Some parachurch organisations end up almost being a local church um, by virtue of the way they function. Often uni ministries are like that because you have gatherings and you've got... Leaders and you've got, you know, church discipline that goes on. It almost ends up functioning like a local church. It's a de facto local church. Um, so it's just a matter of working out where they fit in on that schema. Ah. Uh, where in the Bible can we go to explore further the point of Jesus' human nature continuing into eternity? Yes. Uh, you can go to a place like Ephesians chapter one. Where it talks about how Jesus twenty twenty one um, Ephesians one twenty, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Okay, Uh, And God placed all things under Jesus' feet. So there's a perfect example of Jesus being raised bodily, now seated on the throne of the universe, and all authority is now under Jesus, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. In other words, Jesus will rule for all eternity as a human being. Now that was always God's intention for creation, wasn't it? Uh, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they may rule over the fish of the sea. We forfeited that rule in the fall. There were all kinds of attempts for that rule to be done through fallen humans. The rule was first to be done through Israel. They were to be a kingdom of priests. That didn't work very well. Then the human king was raised up. That didn't work very well. Uh, The kings of Israel turned out to be terrible and it was finally fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Okay, um, so there's a there's a verse. Ah, yeah, this is a great question. Can you explain what it means for salvation to be applied versus accomplished? This is a really important point. This is what the whole Reformation of the 16th century was fought over. Um, why is this important? We have to hold that what Jesus did was to accomplish salvation and we must distinguish between the accomplishment of that and then the application of that. Because the church going into the 16th century, the medieval Catholic church, ceased to make that distinction. Now, if salvation has not been accomplished... What it means is that when I become a Christian, if salvation is not complete and accomplished, then I need to keep contributing to salvation. See, If Jesus hasn't done it all in his death and resurrection, what more needs to be done? Uh, well, I need to add to that, I, my works are critical to that. So... The difference between salvation accomplished and salvation applied shows the distinction between what Christ has accomplished is absolutely complete and then I can receive that completeness by faith. My works do not contribute to my salvation in any way whatsoever. That's why I'm saved by faith and I'm saved by faith alone and faith is merely just trusting It's the beggar's hand uh, that reaches out and receives that complete salvation, it preserves the fact that I don't work for my salvation. Uh, In other words, good works are not the root of my salvation, they are the fruit of my salvation. So all my good works are evidence that I've been saved, they're not means of my salvation don't know if that's scratching me, the person is itching me who asked that. But there we are. How should Christians consider evolutionary creation? A <laughs> um, uh, couple of things to say here. Um, the first thing I'm going to say is I'm not a biologist. Uh, so I'm probably not the person to give an evaluation of the theory of evolution. Number one. Number two... Uh, Evolutionary creation. Uh, The thing about evolution, let me step back. The word evolution can mean five or six things, depending on who you're talking to. For example, evolution can mean um, natural selection of a species. Well, we know that that's true. We can prove that. That's not talking about one species moving to another species. That's just evolution within a evolution within a species. Well, you know, that's pretty much a scientific fact. then some people say evolution is the movement from one species to another. You know, a fish becomes uh, a horse, who we eventually becomes a human, or something like that. Okay, so you've actually got a complete change in species. You can see how much. You know, I'm a biologist. Uh, the statement like that. Um, that's uh, what some people mean by evolution. Uh, now, um, so my biologist friends tell me there's actually, it's very difficult to prove that. Uh, it's often speculation uh, about other processes in nature that cause people to think that that can happen, and the fossil record is not good at justifying that. Um, then there's the full naturalistic evolution of someone like Richard Dawkins, where uh, he kind of makes evolution be... The mechanism that explains absolutely everything. And so everything's evolution. Not only are animals involved in evolution, but morality evolves and economics evolves and politics evolves and all that kind of thing. Um, And that's often been called Darwinitis. That's applying evolution to absolutely everything. Uh, Doesn't work very well. Uh, The 20th century, just to show that we're not uh, evolving morally. The 20th century was the most destructive of all centuries compared to the other 19. And 100 million people were slaughtered uh, through atheists. It was atheists who did it. All this business about wars and religion. No, 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 no. It's atheists who've slaughtered the most people uh, when you add it all up. And, you know, with Mao Zedong and uh, with Stalin, uh, with Hitler, with Pol Pot, when you go, go through them all that way. The problem with naturalistic evolution, this view of it, is that evolution... Uh, rests on life. You can't have evolution without life. But evolution didn't produce life. Where did life come from? We don't know. Um, Richard Dawkins says it was an accident. That's just so irrational it's not funny. Okay, that, that's the whole thing, you know, where you throw all of the things together and, uh, suddenly a computer comes out. It's just ridiculous to say that life is an accident. Life is so intricate, particularly when you understand DNA and, and the coding involved in that. Um So, evolution only can, if it is true, can only explain a part of what's going on in creation. Okay, but it can't explain things like life, and then it can't explain where the universe came from. And it can't explain what happened before the Big Bang and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, personally myself, I struggle with the theory of evolution in that I don't see that its mechanism of natural selection and genetic mutation can explain everything. Um, it's it, there's just too much that can't be explained by that like how did the human brain come about because the human brain is tuned to truth where I'm told evolution tunes things to survival now why would it why would the brain evolve into something that is a truth teller isn't that just meant to be isn't evolution all about? Uh, causing something to survive. We don't, this truth that this brain can produce can tell me all kinds of things about what's going on in the cosmos that has absolutely got nothing to do with my survival. The theoretical and pure maths that we've learned via our brains have got nothing to do with our survival. It just doesn't fit the evolutionary mechanism well. Uh, um, so, um, I don't, again, I don't know if that's scratching where it's itching. Um, I would suggest you read John Lennox's book, God's Undertaker. Uh, where he's got a very good analysis, I think, of evolution. And as a mathematician with three PhDs uh, at Oxford, uh, he's done the likelihood of evolution being true mathematically and says it's ridiculous, but uh, does so in a gentle and careful way. God's Undertaker by John Lennox with a double M-L-E-N-M-O-X. <laughs> How do we know non-Christians will forever be unrepentant in hell or is it more of a time's up, lost the opportunity to respond and repent by Jesus' second coming? Okay. How do we know that uh, those who are in hell will be unrepentant? This is a difficult one. Um, I assume that they'll be unrepentant from the verse that I referred to in the last book, because it says, but the cowardly... The vile—that's what they actually are: the unbelievers, the sexually immoral, the proud, blah 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 blah. Those people—they will go to hell. Okay, so they will be going in that state. It doesn't say the godly, the perfect, the okay. So they will—it seems to me—and uh, on the, the evidence is a little thin, but to me, if you put it on the scales, it tips in that direction that those who do go to hell will still be fallen. Now the thing that we know about fallen people um, is that they cannot turn unless there is a work of the Spirit in them, okay? Um, Plenty of places that say that in Scripture, and so those people uh, who are unbelievers, when they go to hell, they won't want to repent, they won't want to come to heaven, Um, it will be something that is repulsive to them, they won't want to come under the rule of the Lord Jesus, Now I'm taking that from what we know the Bible teaches about sin, uh, and from what appears to be the final state of those beliefs who go to hell as well. Okay. Um, The thing about hell is that the Bible mainly uses picture language for it, so it uses images of fire, darkness. They can't be taken literally because fire and darkness can't coexist. Fire, darkness, exclusion. See. Uh, and there, those metaphors are there to try and communicate something to us. Fire meaning distress. Uh, darkness meaning um, separation and loneliness. Um, exclusion meaning being out of a relationship with God. What does it actually mean literally? It's very difficult to know because in the state that we're in at the moment... We can't understand the new creation because that that new creation will be of such a new order that we need different bodies for it, Uh, and we will only be able to truly grasp it in that context. So it's hard to talk about the new creation, and it's hard to talk about hell now because we don't have the capacity to understand it. Okay, so that's why the Bible uses predominantly picture language for both realities. If salvation is not applied to a person in the last things, does it mean it is not applied in the first place? Or is it about a person losing their salvation? I'm not sure I understand that question. If salvation is not applied to a person in the last things, what do we mean in the last things? In the last days? The last days being now? Now? So, it is not applied in the last days now. Since Christ doesn't mean it is not applied in the first place. anyone, anyone interpret that for me? Nice and simple and clear. If someone, let's let's we say, if someone doesn't persevere to the end, does that mean it was never applied in the first place? Um I would say yes. Uh they never were truly saved. Now you get that from the places like the parable of the sower, okay, where uh uh you've got four four types of soil, don't you? And the seed gets snatched away, some seed Receives the gospel very happily, but then peters out very quickly. Some seed, uh, starts to sprout, but then gets choked up uh, by the good things of life, not necessarily suffering. Uh, it's by wealth and cares and whatever. You, and then some seed perseveres to the end. Uh, and I take it from what the rest of the Bible says, uh, that it's only the ones who persevere to the end that truly believed and took in the gospel properly those who have been truly converted will persevere but there will be a lot of people that won't that from our perspective look like they've been saved Uh, and we can't tell the difference because we can't actually see into their hearts and the only indicator is whether they persevere or not and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why we've got warnings in the Bible is so that we can check our own hearts and say have I been legitimately converted Um, Yeah, and you can probably, as can I, mention a number of people that we've seen who look like they've been converted and they haven't persevered on. Some of them may come back, some of them may never have been converted in. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 17. Does it mean that without Christ's resurrection, Christ's death alone was insufficient to pay for our sins? Okay, we need to... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because one of the things, you know, a place like the end of John 2, uh, it says many people believe Jesus, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew the hearts of men. There is a false faith that we can have. Okay, It looks like faith, but it's actually not a true faith. It's kind of a faith that only sits in the head. It hasn't actually sunk to the heart. And the only way you can tell if you're not that person that it's a false faith is if, if eventually you fall, you fall away from a human perspective. Okay, um, So it looks like these people are converted from our perspective. But they've got a false faith. They don't persevere. They're not truly, they're not truly important. Okay, uh, this is the question about whether Christ's death is enough to pay for our sins uh, or do we need a resurrection? Um, so what we've got to do is say, what is it that humans need? What is our problem? And our problem is twofold. Because we are sinners, there's two problems. Number one, we are guilty. The punishment needs to be paid so guilt number two we're bad we are bad people our hearts are bad we need to be changed so we need guilt to be dealt with but we need to be changed on the inside now Christ's death is sufficient to take away my guilt he paid the price but I need the resurrection for my heart to be changed remember I talked about new modes of power Resurrection power is the power that God uses to change my heart. That is why Christ's death is not enough to save us. It's enough to pay for my guilt. But I've also got the problem of being a bad person and that's where I need the resurrection. Okay, That is why now resurrection power has started in your heart when you were born again, when you were regenerated. Okay, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. It's actually begun. Uh, so you can't, we can't be saved without the resurrection, but let's recognise what Christ's death does, as opposed to resurrection. Death pays the price for our guilt. Resurrection doesn't do that. The resurrection is all about making me good. Okay, I hope that answers the question. Okay. Could you clarify what Hades is and what is purgatory? Where does the idea of purgatory come from? Okay. Uh, So, clarify what Hades is. uh, The Greek word Hades, the Hebrew word Sheol, that is the word used to talk about people when they die and that it appears to be some kind of a holding place for people when they die. The Old Testament doesn't talk much about Sheol. Uh, That is unpack it for us. It mentions it, says a few vague things about it, but as we move into the New Testament, we learn a little bit more about it. Uh, Sheol, we learn at least in the New Testament, is a place where unbelievers will go before they are raised. It appears to be some place of torment, okay, but it's not, it's not people receiving final Judgment and condemnation in hell, okay, and that they are kept there until they are raised, okay. So that's that's Hades. Um, the rich man and Lazarus, you know that parable. That's talking about Hades. That is not talking about hell. It seems to me. The word Hades is used there. The word for hell is not Hades. It's Gehenna. A couple of other words, but fundamentally Gehenna. The problem. Is that the English translators have translated Hades and Gehenna both as hell, so it can be a bit confusing. Uh, so just look carefully. I don't think that's in the latest NIV, but it certainly was in the earlier NIVs. It's in the King James. It's in a number of English translations. Just look carefully. Now, purgatory. Where did purgatory? Where did the idea of purgatory come from? Uh, it had early. Proponents of the vague idea of purgatory. One of the people who actually started speculation about purgatory going was the great churchman Augustine, one of my favourite theologians. Okay? But it was in the early middle ages, in the 500 to 1000 AD era, that purgatory really started to take root. Why did purgatory arise? Simply for this reason. When I die, if I'm not perfect, How could I possibly front up to God who is perfect? We know that God is holy and cannot have, cannot be contaminated, cannot have imperfection in His presence. And so people thought, well if, if I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven, and I, God can't have uh, any kind of imperfection in heaven, then there must be some purification process that goes on between my death and me getting to heaven. And so they speculated, they went beyond Scripture, because Scripture doesn't teach this, that there's a period of purification, and by the time you become perfect, then you can go to heaven. Okay, That only applies to believers. Unbelievers don't go to purgatory. Unbelievers eventually go to hell. So it's just the issue of some kind of perfection going on. And then it started to gather momentum in the high Middle Ages, that is, 1000 to about 1350 AD, and... Um, and it was at the Reformation with Martin Luther, John Calvin in the 16th century. Not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther. Martin Luther King was named after Martin Luther. Martin Luther is way more important. Uh, and just so you know, Martin Luther King's a great man, but Martin Luther is even greater. Uh, um, they saw that if justification by faith is true and that Christ has won our complete salvation, then your purgatory... Is, it, is against us. We can't hold to purgatory. We can't purify ourselves in any way. It's what Christ does that purifies us. And so that was where purgatory after a thousand years or so got discarded. Maybe you have uh, one final question. One final question. <coughs> which, which one? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to choose. That one? Based on the diagram, that one? Based on the diagram of the gospel at the centre with other topics on the periphery, how do we deal with differences in doctrine? Yes, okay, good question. Um, Gospel at the centre, when when you say the other doctrines on the periphery, the doctrines that we had in that map are not on the periphery. These are the most important doctrines in the Bible. There are other doctrines out there on the periphery, but I wouldn't put sin and humanity and all that out on the periphery. Good. Now, the, the issue is to do with differences over doctrine. In the Bible, in the New Testament, it seems to me that you can roughly class the importance of doctrine into three categories. Number one, uh, and so just think of three concentric circles. At the core are issues of salvation, or gospel issues. If you get these wrong, you can't be saved. Paul says in Galatians 1, you know, if you're preaching another gospel, let them be eternally condemned. Okay, so if you get the gospel wrong, you can't be saved. It's not only gospel belief it 's also the gospel lifestyle so in a place like one corinthians six nine Paul says neither adulterers idolaters uh, the sexually immoral, etc 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 will inherit the kingdom of God so if you believe that idolatry and idolatry sorry idolatry and adultery and all those things are fine, that is a belief that puts your salvation in peril as well so you 've got salvation issues. In Hebrews five, we've got I think what are called health issues. These are issues that you need to move from milk onto solid food. Okay, you can get them wrong, but you're just an unhealthy Christian. So that's in the secondary health issues. Okay, and then in the outer ring, you've got issues that we can disagree on, and they won't affect our salvation. Romans fourteen talks about disagreeing days, uh, food. You know, that that kind of thing. Because that won't affect your salvation. So you've got salvation issues, health issues, and then what we'd say indifferent issues. Have your opinion, but we're free to disagree on it. Okay? Now the trick is knowing what to put the doctrine in. Uh, um, and I think you'd put it this way. How directly does it relate to the gospel? So those on the inner ring relate directly to the gospel. Health issues relate indirectly to the gospel and issues uh, of indifference are quite a distance from the gospel and actually won't really affect the gospel that way. I, myself, I'll go out on a limb here, I would put something like the debate between infant and believer's baptism, not baptism itself, but that debate about whether we baptise babies or not, I would put that in the outer ring. I think we're free to disagree on that one as Christians. And it won't affect our salvation. Have your opinion. Work it out. But I don't think you should split a church up. Um, something like predestination, I would put that in a health ring. You can be a Christian and deny predestination, okay, but it will lead to unhealthy practice. Um, and I think how do those three rings apply to a local church? You want to go to a local church where the leadership gets both the salvation and the health issues right. Because if they don't get the health issues right, it won't lead to a healthy church. And you don't want to go to a local church that divides over issues in the outer wing in different issues. Because they're dividing the church arbitrarily. Okay? Alright, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.